Well, good day and welcome to an FS Club seminar. As you know, FS Club covers a whole variety of things, but uh, principally areas of technology and finance. And today we're going to have a great discussion, I hope, with uh, my dear friend, Maurice Schenk. And we're going to be talking about COVID-19 contact tracing. Uh, the subtext of this is a solution, a privacy and GDPR nightmare, or a technical bridge too far. And Maury and I have uh, cooked up, we hope, a bit of a fun area for you. But today is an interesting day uh, because uh, today uh, we saw that the UK government has launched 25,000 contact tracers. We had apparently had a 2,000 uh, positive virus, uh, 2013 positive uh, virus uh, things in the last week. Uh, and those tests are being traced down by a, a, an army of 25,000. Uh, and we'll come on to the distinction between the importance of contact tracing, but perhaps the uh, uh, the dangers of using an app in a moment. Now, uh, I'm Michael Minelli. I am the executive chairman of Zen, and it's my privilege to be allowed to run these webinars. And I can only do that thanks to our many sponsors. And I have to thank our sponsors copiously, because what we love about them is that they give us a wide variety of latitude to cover the huge number of topics in technology and finance that matter to our club members. Anyway, today's outline is basically we're going to talk about uh, permission frameworks and Maury's going to cover the ground uh, that he has written about at length and which was presented about 18 months ago. We're going to talk about contact tracing and why it might matter. I want to look at some of the efficacy, efficacy concerns, I can say that, uh, and we want to look at who's doing what and where. And then finally, have a discussion about what this means uh, for privacy and GDPR. So that's the outline. Uh, Maury's going to start. I'll pick up uh, some of the stuff in the middle about what's going on actively. Maury is going to close on the privacy and GDPR concerns. That'll take about 25 minutes, we hope. And that leaves us about 20 minutes for questions. And this is an area where comments are as welcome as questions. Please do use the GoToWebinar question facility that you have on your app or screen uh, to send questions through and Maury and I will pick them up for you. Well, that's enough from me. My job is to get out of the way and let Maury uh, introduce Permission Frameworks. Maury, over to you. Thank you very much, Michael. You know, this, um, this webinar, as you know very well, started out with us thinking, well, we should represent our report on per Permission Frameworks and we realized the relevance to uh, COVID-19 contact tracing, and that's why we're talking about that today. But let's talk about the broader framework. This is sort of a big, hairy, audacious idea that Michael and I came up with about two years ago, and that we wrote a report about 18 months ago. And the idea is that in today's digital environment, we really need a permission framework. Um, and so what is a permission framework? It's like, it's a set of rules to say what can you do or what can't you do, what ought you to do, what ought you not to do in certain situations. And we don't have a consistent set of rules for that online. We do have it for access control, but there are all kinds of other circumstances. And there's a few pictures here on this first slide, you know, like getting access to a building, getting access to drive your Tesla Roadster, hopefully many of you own one. Um, Etc. And there are no widely accepted standards for this. There are tough cybersecurity issues. How do we develop a consistent framework for that? Next slide. So we we're going to start with the answer. 
this is what we came up with, and it's a, it's a little bit technical. It's based on the open systems interconnection framework for, uh, for networks, where you have a stack, and at the bottom is the underlying network. At the top is the services, where we have an idea of providing permission frameworks in a number of specific areas, such as privacy, which is what we're going to talk about today, consumer financial securities trading. And in the middle is the nuts and bolts, which I'll come on to, uh, which is a lot of what we wrote about, about something called deontic logic, which um, is obscure, but kind of fun. And uh, we'll talk some about that. And smart ledgers, what some people would call blockchain systems. Uh, we've done a lot of work together and Michael's done a huge amount of work on smart ledgers and the roles that those could play in the solution. Next slide. So, when choosing a permissions framework, there were a number of criteria we looked at. It needs to be precise enough to convey an exact uh, permissions. It needs to be broad enough to convey any permission. And it needs to be usable, applicable in the real world. And so we looked at some candidates. Access control, as I mentioned, is pretty well developed. There are great permission frameworks for um, access to computer systems. Um, some of them are listed here. But it's pretty narrow, and it's not easily extensible. There's something called differential privacy, which is originally, I believe Apple did a lot of work on this and, and they continue to implement this on, in their systems and with the iPhone. It's uh, conveying information while avoiding disclosure of personal information. And in the Apple Google protocol for contact tracing that Michael will talk about, they use that. And then there's uh, something called deontic logic, which is the formal logic of what you may do and what you ought to do. Uh, and we thought the Antic logic was a good candidate. Next slide. So what is the Antic logic? Well, it's a little bit technical. Uh, I, when I presented this paper for the first time, I, you know, I said the Antic logic itself fails our usability criteria because look how technical it is. And I went through the examples. And people said to me afterwards, well, we could understand that. Uh, I'm going to go through it pretty quickly here. But the idea is you have some simple permission-based thing that a human uses or it's simple or understandable such as you are the author uh, authorized user of this computer system uh, which is a there's a high level meaning of that um, and some variables and you write it as a deontic proposition in this case p meaning permission that you have the uh, the right to access resource r Going down to the bottom, a little more com uh, complicated. If you're at a nightclub, somebody says no ID, no entry. Well, that's a permission-based thing. Uh, you can dissect that to a high-level proposition. Um, if a person can't prove that she's over age K, then she can access research R, which is the hot nightclub. And on the right-hand side, we write that as a deontic proposition using some perhaps less familiar characters like the uh, negation symbol and the something is provable from something simple. Next slide. In any event, to, to get there uh, to the permission framework that we said earlier, you need to somehow convert deontic logic into a uh, something that's understandable, which is why we developed the broad, uh, the broader framework where there are sectors, there's a sector specific level. Um, smart ledgers are also an important part of the solution. Um, there are ways you could do this with a centralized solution um, that's not a distributed one like smart ledgers, but smart ledgers have some advantages. They're inherently distributed and permissions need to be inherently distributed. And open architectures, which is what we're trying to achieve with this framework, are very common. There are some technical te challenges. 
it's complex and dealing with complex things is not as advanced for smart ledgers as it is for um, centralized computer systems. And implementing deontic logic on a Boolean computer is uh, is challenging. And I won't go into the details of this. Uh, I'd be happy to talk about it offline or in questions, but the basic principle is the concept of may or the concept of ought is not completely congruent with the true false concept, the zero one of the bits of a Boolean computer. So in our presentation, in our paper that we wrote, we talked about legal challenges. Um, uh, GDPR challenges for implementing this kind of permissions framework. We looked at major jurisdictions, Europe, US, China, and India, and the, the, the challenges were quite different by the jurisdictions. And we talked about some of the tensions between GDPR and smart ledgers. Uh, the big ones are uh, erasure, that it's hard to erase stuff that's on a smart ledger, and there's some rights to that under GDPR, and that repeated processing of the ledger is arguably inconsistent with data minimization principles under GDPR. But we um, we think there are solutions to those. We wrote about them in a lot more detail in our report. Next slide. So this is our report. Uh, it's available on the uh, ZN website. Um, and there's a link here, which I, I believe this presentation will be available. Um, and uh, you can read in a lot more detail about what I've just talked about. but Really, the, the agenda of the day is to apply this to COVID-19 contact tracing. And for details of some contact tracing solutions, I'll turn it over to Michael. Thank you very much, Maury. Uh, it's a, it was a rapid run through, a very deep and important paper. Uh, and I think the, the, the point that uh, you've made, which is, which is crucial here, is that had we had a permissioning structure that had been agreed, uh, prior uh, to COVID-19, uh, it would have been a lot simpler to think about some of the concepts underlying the tracing systems. Uh, but it's my job to talk about contact tracing and see that as an important uh, part of the applicability of permissioning systems. So uh, in contact tracing, as you can see on the slide before you, uh, what you're really trying to do is to follow somebody who has uh, actually exhibited either an exposure to the virus or symptoms of the virus, and you want to basically find out whom they've been in turn in contact with. And that's what the 25,000 uh, people are doing today. They're looking at people, seeing uh, who they've been in touch with, and following that up and trying to uh, therefore counsel people on what the appropriate behavior is. Uh, which is largely isolation uh, for the vast majority of people that they're attempting to contact. So a fairly straightforward application. But where might an app, as we call it, uh, fit in? Well, uh, the BBC uh, has described it uh, as follows, that the contact tracing app really just records the details of those people who are near you. And if it turns out that one of those people has exhibited symptoms of the virus then or tested positive for the virus then you in turn will be contacted after the event so uh, nothing very complex here you might think but of course the difficulty here uh, is that the systems uh, that are doing this potentially do in many cases violate gdpr um, i've put up a slide for one system uh, that zien has proposed something called cove id uh, that is one approach. It is hardly alone, and I'm not here to sell that because I'm going to go through, in fact, some of the other uh, larger systems that are out there. 
Well, the first thing is that uh, in the Far East, which exhibited the virus early on, uh, you can see here uh, three different systems. Uh, you have the Korean system, uh, you've got uh, this, uh, the Chinese system, uh, and you also, in fact, have uh, down here uh, a German system. So people, oh, sorry, Swiss German system. So you've got people out there who've already built uh, contact tracing apps. And in many of these cases, these apps have been deployed in areas without our legal structure. And to some degree, therefore, the permissioning frameworks that we're talking about um, either haven't applied or have been overridden uh, due, due to the emergency. And that's, uh, that, that is a local decision. Uh, Singapore's uh, Trace Together is a pretty good example of an application out there. Trace Together uh, it has been tracing on a smartphone app, but it actually only achieved about a 20, 25% uh, take up by the population. So we'll come on to the efficacy of uh, some of these systems later. Uh, but what you'll see here is basically the Singaporean government saying, if you give us this data, then, then we will use it. Um, however, uh, in most of the Western world, uh, part of our difficulty has been, have I given permission for you to use that? And what are you going to be using this data for? And there have been a host of protocols. So while Xian may have come up with COVID, as I said, we're hardly alone. And you will find many others and potentially much more successful uh, projects out there, consortium of various uh, type. I'm going to focus, though, if I might, uh, really on four. Uh, the Three of them are what we think might be the leading consortia simply by weight of momentum. Uh, and the fourth is, of course, the NHS contract tracing protocol down at the bottom of this slide. Uh, and probably the most interesting thing about the NHS contact tracing protocol has been that it's been developed uh, neither uh, on the back of any of the existing uh, Far Eastern systems that have sort of seen uh, the hard edge of the pandemic, uh, nor has it been uh, developed using any of the consortia. And finally, uh, it is a private specification as opposed to an open source specification and one that relies upon central logging. Uh, and central logging is uh, got particular dangers in a GDPR sense merely because of the vulnerability of a centralized system uh, and the fact that, of course, somebody does control it. And that's as opposed to some of the smart ledgers uh, that Maury was talking about earlier. Um, but the three uh, that, that do uh, feature, and uh, for those of you who are not familiar with this area, uh, one is what's called DP3T, uh, Decentralized Privacy Preserving Proximity Tracing. Try and say that five times fast, uh, and you're going to be a better person than I. Uh, this project, uh, which locally involves University College London, uh, but is uh, really spread across Europe, has received uh, some, some pretty good uh some very, very, very good responses. There are a few niggles about the security, but it is a GDPR compliant system. A second GDPR compliant system is pan-European privacy preserving proximity tracing. There seems to be something here about tongue twisters that you can't have a successful consortium without a good tongue twister. Uh, and again, this one uh, has had a little bit more uh, press about it that's been slightly negative, uh, again, about con uh, privacy concerns and security concerns. Uh, but is is definitely up there. And finally, uh, an interesting uh, approach by Google and Apple, who've got their privacy preserving contact tracing project. There we go. I'm getting through these, Maury, I hope. Uh, and uh, this third 
project uh, was a, a, an effort really by uh, Google and Apple to work together so that the apps could function both on the iPhones and the Android uh, system phones out there. Uh, this project, in fact, was uh, notified to uh, the UK Information Commission office uh, earlier this year, uh, principally because there were potential uh, anti-competitive uh, violations of the two firms working together. Uh, it's been approved in many jurisdictions. It's, it's okay if these two want to work together on this specific project. Uh, the Google and Apple uh, proposal is here on this slide together. And again, fairly simple. When A and B meet, their phones exchange a code. If uh, A becomes infected, he updates his status. And then uh, there's consent to share with B uh, that he has uh, tested positive and then she needs to take an appropriate reaction. Uh, this could or may not be available to contact tracers if they wish uh, to feature in the system as well. Uh, so in the UK, uh, the, the application looks uh, very similar, as you can see here. Uh, this is from the BBC, and it basically shows a slide almost identical to the Google and Apple slide. But the principal difference here is that it's a centralized database as opposed to a distributed database and data structure. So um, that's a quick canter through a field that is moving very, very rapidly. Uh, and while I may have focused on four applications, the three uh, consortia plus the NHS, uh, there's no clue which one of these or, many, or the many others uh, might turn out to be predominant if contract, contact tracing using apps is something that uh, we wish to pursue. I'm going to turn back to Mori because there are privacy and GDPR concerns uh, that he would like to cover for you. Thank you very much, Michael. So, yes, contact tracing apps really raise a host of concerns that are right at the heart of data protection law. Uh, data, in GDPR, there's the principle of data protection by design and default. You have to build privacy into the app and uh, privacy being so important, you absolutely have to think about that here. You know, processing for limited purposes and minimization will come on to that, particularly with the question of centralized solutions versus um, decentralized solutions. And what is the basis for processing? Are you processing it because people have given you their consent um, or can you mandate it? Uh, is it there is a basis for processing in the public interest? Could you force people to to have their data processed for this purpose? The European there's a lot of people who have looked at these privacy issues, but uh, sitting here in uh, what used to be part of the EU and still follows EU law for the time being, um, the most and and will continue to apply GDPR here in the UK. Um, the European Data Protection Board is. Uh, recommendations are probably the most influential guidance on this, in my opinion. And it's a, a fairly long set of um, guidance, um, you know, 20 pages of comments on how to do this best, but I've tried to distill down the essence of it here. Basically, the board has said the contact tracing must be voluntary. You can't force people to carry uh, an app that says um, who they've been in contact with. Interestingly, they uh, they favored national apps over third-party apps. So there are some people who have tried to go, uh, some private companies that have tried to introduce contact tracing, whether as a business or or otherwise. Um, and I, I think the board basically just saw risk 
from that, that the data will be misused, that it will be a smokescreen for some other mis um, some other use of people's location data. And that and also to get a large uptake, you really do need a national app. Uh, the, the board has also said that you shouldn't have general sharing of location data. Um, although um, coming to the last bullet, they've said that either centralized or decentralized solutions are acceptable. The, the real issue with the centralized solution is that you have to pass everybody's location data to the, uh, to the solution, and it can be architected in a way that it should only be usable for contact tracing, but that's only if you trust the party that's doing it. And there's a lot of central government authorities um, that would love to have uh, the surveillance data of knowing where a large percentage of the population is going all the time. Uh, that's very controversial from a privacy perspective. Uh, and so uh, that tension between location uh, and centralized or decentralized solutions is really at the heart of it. But there are ways to do both in a privacy compliant way, uh, says the European Data Protection Board at least. Final point that they've said is that when identifying an individual as infected under any solution, um, it should only be after a proper health assessment uh, so um, no uh, no arbitrary saying that somebody isn't uh, has COVID-19 and that they should be identified pseudonymously. So not anonymously, they can be re-identified, but it shouldn't be with their name. So um, the question here is, should the law bend to the exigencies of this situation, which seem a little bit less severe now than they did a few weeks ago, but I think most of us, uh, most a lot of technically um, sophisticated people think we've got a, lot, a long way to go with this, uh, with the COVID-19 problem. And so, you know, whether, how much you bend the law for app-driven contact tracing, I think depends upon the question of efficacy. And there's contact tracing as, uh, you know, Michael introduced um, the, this seminar by saying, there's 25,000 people going out uh, starting today to trace contacts in the UK, starting with only 2,000 uh, people who were identified as positive last week. Uh, I don't know whether all 25,000 are needed for just 2,000 positive tests, but the point is a very it's very hard to do. But there is a consensus that that kind of people-intensive contact tracing is effective. It's been demonstrated Repeatedly, it's been demonstrated in the Ebola uh, outbreak in Africa. But app-driven contact tracing is completely unproved, and there are reasons to believe that it wouldn't work as well uh, yet as people-driven. Um, there, here we summarize some of the efficacy concerns. Um, you know, there's the risk of false positives. You don't know how far away uh, the Bluetooth communications were. Uh, people could actually be uh, quite close together, but be on the other side of a wall. Um, so there's actually no risk. And GPS and Bluetooth have some inherent inaccuracies in them. That's also on the. Uh, that's also a problem with false negatives, where people have been close together, but the app doesn't pick it up. And probably the biggest problem is that, assuming this is voluntary, that people have to download the app. Uh, you need a very big uptake. It's estimated around 70 plus percent to make this useful at all. And even in Singapore, which was a bit of a poster child for this, as Michael said, they didn't get much more than 20 percent uptake. Uh, and 
Iceland uh, did app driven contact tracing and has been very successful suppressing the virus. But recently, the the law enforcement there has commented that uh, the apps really didn't play much of a role in that. And there's other problems such as the transmission time, you know. And so, uh, and even if you use it, are you going to respond to a suggestion that you need to quarantine with all these risks? If somebody sends you a message that says you may have been near somebody who had COVID-19, are you really sure that you're going to quarantine for two weeks on that basis? Um, and there's a few other issues regarding the technical performance of the phone. Uh, Bluetooth constantly working in the background that's going to run down batteries, which none of us really like. And so with everybody feeling that the, the risk from the virus is probably a little bit less severe, we're starting to open up. Are we going to get 70% of people to download it? I'm extremely skeptical of that. And so the GDPR concerns are there, but I actually think the efficacy concerns are more fundamental. Michael mentioned the, the uh, ZN COVID concern, which is uh, it's contact tracing, but it's closer to a passport approach that is being used in China, where people carry around an app that says whether they are safe for uh, COVID-19, whether they're sick now, whether they've had the disease. I think things like that may be a more important uh, element of the solution that allows people to move around than app-driven contact tracing. So with that, I'll turn it back to Michael to uh, be the um, uh, MC of, any, of questions. Well, Maury, we've uh, got uh, 60 people online, and so there are actually a lot of questions. Uh, but I think uh, I, I just uh, kind of sum up that this last bit about permission frameworks, we've seen effectively, uh, you know, your paper from 18 months ago saying this is an important framework to get right. We've now had an, an application tracing. And then as you just ended and pointing out, we're going to move into areas like documentation and others, which all are different, but require a framework in which you can put these without uh, constantly having people throwing up red flags about the event. Uh, and we're going to wander, I can see from some of the questions here, a little bit into uh, the areas which will be uh, pushing our boundaries of uh, knowledge, let alone uh, any any element of authority uh, about the disease itself uh, and best treatment. But let's get started here. Um, well, the first uh, comment is really more a comment from Robert Woodthorpe Brown, and he was pointing out that uh, listening to Taiwanese Tech Minister Audrey Tang, uh, she emphasized that the Taiwanese government bent over backwards to involve the t public by telling the whole truth every day. They obtained the full consent of the people, hence their success. They learned uh, of the incident, the outbreak in Wuhan, believe it or not, on the 31st of December last year and started testing arrivals the following day, the 1st of January. So, you know, well and above contract tracing uh, and the Taiwanese experience is salutary, it is very much early response uh, and effective response. So thank you very much for that comment, Bob. Maury, um, we've got a question here about, uh, is it time really for formal national review of GDPR in light of the expansion of technology developments and its new reach into the domain of privacy? Is that really required? Or do you think that the framework sort of discussions you've had could be implemented without some big royal commission? Well, the GDPR has a built-in review process from you know two years out, which we're approaching, and people are going to start to to look at that. Um, you know, there are there are problems with GDPR. My own personal bugbear is some of the um, 
obligations on data processors where this there's this horrible proliferation of data processing agreements. So I think there are some things that need to be reviewed, but I, I the, it's early days. We're just not that far in. There hasn't been that much enforcement. So I, uh, my view would be it's early for a wholesale review and that we need to tinker at the edges. I did have a, one comment on the first uh, comment about Taiwan um, on Sweden, you know, uh, and the, the point that was made about trust. Uh, the Swedes have been held up by the likes of um, certain, you know, orange-based presidents of, uh, as an example of how you can be open, you know, not locked down and, uh, and still have a successful response to COVID-19. And I think the point was made in Sweden that they had a highly trust-based society so that when people are trusted to behave, as I think the point was made about Taiwan, the response can work better. Um, and so I thought that was a very interesting point. Uh, Maury, uh, interesting to hear, Bob McDowell, who's uh, dialing in from the Channel Islands, has is, got a couple of comments here, and I'd sum it up as he's asking really, you know, why not set permissioning with sunset clauses to compel formal revision uh, in the future? Any, any thoughts on, you know, could, couldn't this be achieved simply with just a government saying, well, there's a sunset clause, we're going to destroy all the data in 60 days or something? Well, Bob is a dear friend, so hi, Bob. Um, Good question. Uh, yes, I think that people would like to do exactly that. The, the problem is, will they? Um, I was just reading an article yesterday, I think, and I'm forgetting the country, but I think it might have been, I think it was China, where you know these things are being rolled out for COVID-19 and, and are being, even though China has its COVID-19 situation much under control, although they, um, there continue to be small outbreaks and heavy um, control of society to prevent that from getting worse. Um, but situations under control, but the apps seem to be durable. Um, some of the additional features are durable and China is famous through, um, you know, social credit and starting to introduce greater surveillance of society. Uh, I think we might fear the same thing happening um, in, what we like to think of as our freer societies, because surveillance um, is is sort of a, an ever rising tide here. So yes, it would be good if we could do that. Will it happen? I uh, we've got to be careful. Uh, Ricardo Tosato is asking uh, something. I'm going to throw it at you, um, but I would point out to most viewers that this is something you, you may need to get your head around and uh, actually read online. It's a question about privacy. Uh, if the tracing apps acquire information in a really anonymous manner, how can I be contacted if a person I met days ago is found to have been infected? Uh, so he, he's uh, you know, quite curious here about uh, how is this uh, anonymous? If you don't mind, maybe just 30 seconds on that, Maury, because I know it can get technical fast. All right. Well, so if you let's talk about the Google, Google Apple protocol, um, which is probably the most widespread one. And Google and Apple have been really robust uh, in saying they will only allow a protocol, enable a protocol on their phones that's local to the phone. Uh, and they will not um, they will not allow a centralized solution where the information goes to a centralized server. And taking such a local solution, the all that the phone knows is that it's been in con it's been near other phones 
over a period of time that send out uh, signals. And at, if at some point the system declares that one of those phones uh, is was owned by a person who later became um, known to be COVID-19 positive, your phone will know that, but nobody else will know. Um, and so, and the person who's COVID-19 positive has to record it on their own phone. So it really is, um, there is no way that information can leak about who's positive and who is not under that system. Good, thank you. Uh, Liz Thrussell makes a, an interesting point. People with apps are more likely to be in circulation than people uh, without smartphones who have tended to stay at home. Uh, surely tracing is better than nothing. If the R rate stays at uh, 0.5, it will take us 16 months to overcome. Uh, you want to make any remarks on that point? It's a, that's a really interesting point. I mean, yeah. maybe maybe if um, maybe the number isn't as high as 70 percent uh, of the total population uh, that I cited and that I had, uh, I had read. Um, if that you know, assuming that if you can get a a large proportion, a you know, majority of people who are actually moving about to download these apps, it could be better than nothing. Um, Although I'll say again, in Iceland, where they had pretty good uptake of this, they said, well, it helped a little bit. Um, so the question is, how much resources do we throw at this versus other other things, I think? Hmm. Um, Ludzrowski uh, is returning a little bit to uh, a distinction. I, in fact, I may not have been quite as clear as, as you were, Maury, that we've got contact tracing and then we have a kind of identity. Uh, uh, sorry. We have uh, health documentation and identity issues as well, uh, so there are two different potential applications already in this in this sphere. And one of the problems with the second one on identification is we're still unsure at a scientific level whether or not exposure uh, or and or recovery from the virus actually gives you any long-term immunity. But leaving that to one side, his point here uh, was given efficacy concerns of track and trace. Wouldn't it be better to focus on voluntary and interoperable travel health status credentials, for example, something to allow people to travel between the UK and Singapore? Uh, and what are your thoughts on people who are working on this type of interoperability? Well, you know, I, I might throw part of that back to you, Michael, with the COVID ID solution. But, I, you know, as I said, I think that those kind of credentials are a more likely part of our durable solution than app-driven contact tracing. I think there, uh, there was the question just had, isn't something better than nothing? And yes, um, but a place to focus our resources, we need to get our societies um, running in a way that can, that can survive long-term presence of coronavirus with minimal human cost. And the things that are likely to make that possible are uh, things like no widespread testing, knowing what people's status is, and, and wearing masks. Um, originally, none of us wanted to wear masks because we know it doesn't do much to prevent uh, coronavirus um, in, in the person wearing the mask. But what it does is it prevents the person who has coronavirus who is wearing the mask from spreading it. And that seems to be fairly clear from the experience in South Korea. So those practical, those kind of practical solutions, I think, are what's going to get us all back up and running. Yeah, it's interesting. I've I, this whole idea of kind of placebo gestures, whether it's a, you know, pressing the button at a crosswalk and it doesn't do anything, but it makes you feel better, uh, 
uh, matter. And for a long time here, we've been sort of claiming effectively that face masks were placebo. Uh, and now it turns out that maybe they do actually have a, they do aid in preventing spread, which I, I would have thought was a good reason. And yet our government seems to not, not care about having face masks. On the other hand, uh, you know, do, do you think that these apps are sort of placebo apps in a way, contact tracing apps? You know, it's, they might be, you know, the efficacy slide there, and we had a link on there, was drawn from, uh, largely from Bruce Schneier, who is my favorite information security commentator. And Schneier likes talking about what he calls security theater. Um, you know, the, the screening at the airports, which, you know, makes us all feel more secure, but a lot of it isn't really directed at the, at the biggest threats. Um, you could say that um, this that there is a bit of health theater in these things. I, I I think that our government in the UK is flailing a little bit in its response. It's done a good job on the economic response to COVID nineteen, uh, a less good job good job on the public health response, and um, and you know might be grabbing at something at these apps as as you know showing that something is being done. I do think that the army of NHS tracers that was announced today that you mentioned is a positive step. Yeah, yeah it's a positive step and it's known and it works and it's the sort of thing that we arguably should have been doing at the time that uh, Taiwan began, which was uh, on New Year's Eve. <laughs> uh, so there yeah. we are. Um, Roger James uh, isn't taking this lying down and I like this. The summary is rather absolutist, whether an app by itself can work. What about an AND strategy integrated with manual tracking where the app augments tracing? Most of the damage is done at the step of contacting a potentially infected individual, not the app. So is GDPR therefore a sideshow and a wider challenge? Well, it's it's a good challenge. And I think a lot of the questions are around this point. I mean, how could the app, you know, there was the earlier comment, you know, is, is an app better than, than nothing? Um, I think it's a really good challenge to say an and thing. I mean, what our innovative people in our society are good at is figuring out um, clever ways to deal with challenges. And so we have tremendous resources going into um, vaccines for COVID-19 um, and talking about having a vaccine ready faster than a vaccine has ever been ready before, under half the time. Um, I think you could probably figure out ways to better combine an app with other bits of contact tracing. The proponents of a centralized solution would say that if you can put this information of who's infected and who's been close together in the hands of health authorities, then they can use it to supplement the, uh, the human contact tracing. And I think that's probably right. Um, and so, in the faces of this crisis, um, should we um, put a more powerful centralized solution in the hands of health authorities and use it as part of the solution? I think is a real question. It would have some serious privacy implications, but uh, it, I, I certainly think the argument that, that it's a thing to do is defensible. Your, your last comment there touches on something that uh, somebody else you know, Ian Harris, uh, wanted to point out. The current crisis regulations are an extreme imposition on our civil liberties. I'm not convinced that mandatory use of GPS data 
or track and trace is a greater imposition. I worry more about efficacy of contact track and trace, both machine-informed and old-fashioned detective work. Your thoughts? Well, I agree. I usually agree with things that uh, that Ian has to say. I mean, I think um, that you know, in in tough times, you need tough measures, and the uh, you know, a lot of people have made the the comments about the human cost of shutdown itself, the economic cost being massive, um, and so to avoid other restraints on our liberties and uh, damage to health, we probably have to accept some limitations on privacy. Um, people would argue on the other side that um, the tough times sometimes begets bad law. So we had earlier situations where European data retention rules, where law and uh, uh, telecoms carriers were re required to retain data on all communications came into the force as a result of bombings. I think it was the bombings in Madrid that, that led to those. And um, responding to terrorism is certainly a, a legitimate concern, but there's been a big fight of, did that go too far? And I think this comes down to Bob McDowell's comment, you know, can we implement it, this in a way that abridges our our uh, privacy for some time and then destroy the data and not let it be uh, let it be a, a camel's nose under the tent for uh, broadening of the surveillance state. This is where the debate is. It's a hard debate. I and I agree with. I don't have a disagreement with any of the points that have been made. Yeah, good. Um, we're going to have to close on questions a minute because I also want to pull us back to finish on permission frameworks, but. I'll just slip in here. Michael Cooper, uh, who knows a heck of a lot about technology, I know, is uh, curious about what about models that simply use location tracking, time data and analysis, which mobile operators already have, either through things like QR codes, mobile, mobile location detection, et cetera, as opposed to Bluetooth and proximity handshakes. But we're not here to redesign uh, that. But I think those would all equally have GDPR issues if they identified an individual. But uh, he might have a, a few thoughts on other ways that, that could be architected uh, to make a terrible uh, verb there. Um, one of the things I, I just wanted to finish on, Maury, though, was, was actually the, the paper that uh, that did come out uh, 18 months back. Imagine that uh, back that November uh, 2018 that this paper had taken the world by storm and the UK government had said, this is fantastic. We can see that by inserting... Uh, this layer in the uh, in the OSI system, the OSI system where we're actually tracking things, we would be able to record all the logics and permissions that had been given to people, and therefore Diontic logic would be a decent structure for it, and they'd implemented it. How would that have affected uh, the interest in developing contact tracing from January of this year? Well, I'll say, first of all, our paper should have taken the world by storm. Maybe it took a small segment of the world by storm. But um, uh, even if it had done, I don't think 18 months uh, would have been long enough to get it into networks. But if starting to talk about these things um, would have would forward the conversation about a lot of the issues that Google and Apple are confronting, um, you know, combining the Android and iOS um, platforms in a way that allows these permissions to ha happen seamlessly for everybody. Those kind of discussions would be easier if we had a broad society-wide um, framework like we do for the internet. 
you know, like everybody knows how you communicate on the internet. Everybody knows how you send an email. Um, everybody, if you could say everybody knows how you ask for permission for something, it would make these kind of discussions a little bit more more liquid. And I and I think it will. Uh, I think this discussion around contact tracing has moved this forward to a certain extent. You know that Google there is now a precedent for Google and Apple to work together. Uh, to get 99% of the world's smartphones and and allow this kind of permission to happen, and maybe it will lead to something more general. Yes, I, I think you know, in, in my personal terms, in the sense of an outlook uh, view from me, I'd agree with you. Uh, I, I think the never waste a good crisis, and the paper came out when the paper came out. But this type of work indicates the importance of having some of that groundwork thinking in place. And more importantly, the the idea behind the permission frameworks was the deontic logic was a way of recording all of that and then using these smart ledgers to do that type of recording uh, so that we can keep uh, GDPR and things uh, under control and, and, and meet the requirements that we all want in society. I think the thing that bothers me is this idea that the minute we hit a crisis, we've got to understand we've got to solve the crisis. Well, fine, but what are we doing to make sure that in subsequent crises we can actually apply sensible principles at all time rather than throwing sensible principles out uh, every time there's a crisis. So I, I think that's a good point. Uh, just before I close, anything you want to comment on, Maury, before we finish? No, I think that was an excellent close, Michael. I love having conversations that are both intellectual and practical, and nobody's better at uh, enabling that than you are. So thank you very much for um, for inviting me to to do so on this COVID nineteen topic. Yeah, well, when I next see you in person, I'll buy you a drink for saying that. Thank you very much, Maury. Anyway, uh, folks, uh, uh, before we close, I, I absolutely must uh, thank our sponsors. As I opened, uh, it is really their forbearance and their tolerance that allows us to range so widely across, as Maury says, the intellectual and the practical. Uh, but Maury, uh, it falls to me, I think, to thank you on behalf of the audience, and I'm afraid. Uh, in these days where you're unable to see your audience, I'm going to give you a virtual clap uh, and say thanks so much uh, for, for appearing today and putting some hard thinking into a very topical subject on exactly the day when it's probably most topical of all. So thank you so much and look forward to having you again. I believe you're speaking to us uh, next month on quantum computing, which should be really, really fascinating, an area I, I know you know a lot about. So I'm looking forward to that as well. Take care, all. <laughs>